we turn one last time to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. It's taken us 10 weeks to cover the introduction to the Manifesto of the Messiah, more commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Today, our text is 513 to 16, but I'd like to read again, beginning at the beginning, so that we can pick up the flavor and note again that shift that comes right at the very end of the Beatitudes. It comes in the noticeable change of pronoun, verse 10, verse 11, blessed are they, verse 10, blessed are ye, verse 11. Verse 11 is where the Lord's eye shift to his intimate circle of disciples. And the address of the Beatitudes 10, 11, 12, and the things that we consider this morning, 13 to 16, are for God's people only. Insider information for the people of God. Back to the beginning of the chapter. And seeing the multitude, Jesus went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And if indeed Beatitudes 1 through 7 are true of me and true of you, then you'll need to know, verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Father, this morning we pray that you would tune the ear of every follower of Christ to the things that our Lord had to say to us in this text, in that time in which the kingdom was being offered Israel. Sadly, they would reject it. 
yet their rejection has meant our salvation. And we are thankful this morning to know you, to love you back who loved us first, and to have knowledge of the gift of Christ at the cross who died for our sins. Help us then to hear the words of exhortation that are given to us of our Lord, distinguishing our lives in this darkened world. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. There's not been much of a need for sunglasses in the beginning of 2023. But the sun shall indeed shine again. You may be of that sure. I thought it'd be neat this morning if the sun came out by the time the service ended. So I'm just holding that thought. I'm not, I'm not asking for it. I'm just holding that thought today. Uh, it would be a good confirmation to what we're about to preach. The last messianic prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 characterizes the coming of the Lord and the kingdom of the Lord in the terms the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings or in his rays. And indeed, the phraseology is S-U-N of righteousness rising with healing in his wings or his rays, like sun rays. Uh, scholars who compl con uh, make complicated every text of Scripture, uh, scholars uh, insist upon the fact that we understand that the sun of righteousness rising has to do with righteous people who come to uh, rule and reign during a golden age of God's kingdom. And uh, I just have to smile uh, when I read such things. Because the Bible doesn't say they shall rise. The Bible says he shall rise. And, uh, and the world likes to talk about a kingdom without the king. But you and I know that the kingdom and the, kingdom go, and the king go together. And that when the Bible says the son of righteousness is going to rise with healing in his wings that it has to connect to King Jesus. Although we would not deny that it connects to his kingdom in the coming day, come. Adult, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He is the son of righteousness risen. And his advent is likened in the last messianic prophecy of the Old Testament era to a sunrise. Malachi likened this idea of the sunrise and his advent to the Lord, to the, to the Messiah. Malachi also foresaw the rising of the Son of Righteousness in relationship to a group of people. And that group of people is described in Malachi 4. You can read it on your own at some point if you desire. But the people are described as people that fear the Lord God and that go forth so as to reflect and to enjoy the rays of that reigning sun. People that enjoy the rays of the sun. We're not talking about physical sun worshipers, 
we're talking about sun worshipers who enjoy the rays of God the Son. Adult Jesus went on to say, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have, but have, but possess the light of life. John 8, 12. I would like to suggest to you that you cannot possibly grasp the last messianic prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, apart from the declaration of Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 12. In our text today, we hear Jesus tell his disciples that they are the light of the world. Verse 14, his disciples possess this light of life that comes from Jesus the Messiah. The sun rays, not talking really about S-U-N, but the sun rays, capital S-O-N, are not only upon the followers, the disciples of Christ, but indeed from within the disciples of Christ. And that's part of the unique emphasis that drives our understanding of today's text as the Lord clearly, with eyes faceted upon Peter and James and John and others of those early disciples, speaks to them directly concerning what they are, not what they should be, but what they are in the plan and program of God. All seven of my grandchildren have spent multiple nights with me in a tent for fun and for memory-making. Whenever it gets to be late enough, whereas they got to be a little bit giddy as children, doesn't take children long, when they're just up a little bit past their normal bedtime, that they start getting giddy, funny. Uh, the, old ad, the old terminology is punch drunk. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they, uh, uh, they get a little giddy. And uh, when they'd get like that, then I would always tell them the same old Indian story. And the story goes like this. Moon, come at night. Sun, come at morning. Now, I would say that slow like that about a hundred times until they were literally begging me to stop. And then the next year in the tent, I'd do the same thing. And then the next year in the tent, the same thing. And now, they all groan <laughs> every time the subject comes up in remembrance. I want to be known as the grandfather who made them groan. <laughs> but you and I take for granted sunrise, sunset. If we liken the Lord Jesus, as does Scripture, to the sun, then we can liken one of his disciples to the moon. One sun shined in the first advent 
And when that sun was set in heaven, many moons began to shine for this period of darkness and night. The good news is that sun comes up in the morning. This is not the end of it. Christ shall come again. You and I live in a darkened world. And as the declaration of Jesus tells us, we live in this darkened world as light. And we need to understand that. We trust that this opening illustration will help to further grasp the Lord's own similitude for his disciples in the terms of salt and light. I call your attention first this morning to the divine intention for the earthly lives of the Lord's own followers as salt and light. Again, permit me just to read the section. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house." Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now you and I know that salt as a physical rock and light exist as a result of the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus pronounced that his followers are the salt of the earth. Jesus pronounced that his followers are the light of the world. And we easily understand that pronouncement as a similitude or as a metaphor of divine design and intention. When God was thinking about the uniqueness of his plan for the ages, amazingly, he had you in mind. He had me in mind. And not only that he would bring to us salvation, but that we, as his believing children, would actually have role and responsibility when his kingdom come. It's a phenomenal thing to think about. It is clear that the Lord Jesus intended that his salt would be salty and that his light never hid. Again, it is clearly the intention of the Lord Jesus that his salt be salty and that his light never hid. Look at that phrase in verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. That is a statement that indicates intention, and design. Someone had to decide where to build that city. It did not just pop up on its own. When once the city is built on a hill, 
then it really cannot be hid because in the daytime, everybody can see it because it's up there. And at nighttime, everybody can see it because it's lit. And so the city on a hill is seen in the daytime because it's up there. And the city is seen at night because it's lit. The builder and the maker of the city is the one that puts it on the hill. And this tells us about the builder and the maker of the messianic city, which is none other than God himself. And it is clearly the intention of God that the followers of King Jesus see themselves as kingdom salt and kingdom light. Furthermore, according to the analogy drawn, the light is intended to benefit the whole of the darkened house. And so not only is the, set, is the city set, but the light is lit. And everything in this, in this description of similitude uh, given to us by our Lord concerning uh, those of us that are following him, everything concerning this has to do with the, with the reality of the intention of God and the design of God uh, to set a city and to light a people for God's own glory. Similitudes of salt and light must be seen as intentional on God's part for those who follow Christ. That brings us to the second point of emphasis this morning, which has to do with the disciples' continuing influence as salt and light. It is clearly grasped by the similitude of salt and light, that, uh, uh, that both are uh, uh, impactful, but in different ways. Salt is hidden influence. Light is open influence. Salt is secret and hidden influence. And light is bold and out there and dispelling of darkness uh, uh, influence. In the ancient world, salt was a valuable and desirable commodity. Roman soldiers were given salt rations as part of their salary and benefits package. This practice, of course, comes into the English uh, uh, as uh, the word salary, which literally translates salt money. If you are paid a salary, and I am here in this church, then the reality is that could be translated your salt money. Uh, And this pronouncement the followers of Christ would have understood him as saying that they were the value or the treasures of value on this earth in the plan and the purpose of God. The similitude of salt is first and foremost a value statement. Ye are the salt of the earth. You are what makes the world valuable. Nothing in the sinful world is valuable to God except that which he has redeemed. Ye are the salt of the earth. You are what makes this world valuable. A little devotional thing that I read this morning early on. It's up a little earlier than I wanted to be this morning, but uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, the little devotional thing that I read 
recounted the fact that uh, the place where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived uh, is named, and yet exactly what the name should be or how it's to be understood uh, precisely is unknown, but that in heaven it's simply known as the town of Mary and Martha. And the devotional writer uh, wrote and said, you know, when God looks at a town, he doesn't see the name of that town as uh, people have named it. He sees the name of the town based upon what he values there. And uh, when God uh, uh, thinks about Elto, he doesn't think about uh, a community uh, here named for this one or that one or because of a rise on the railroad tracks. But he thinks about the people uh, that follow Christ that are associated here. Uh, it might literally be true that this is indeed our town. Think of that in regards to the way that God indeed looks at things. But here's the point. God's people, the followers of Christ, for real, are what is valuable in the earth. And if salt has lost its savor, if salt is not salty, then what would it be good for? Salt is valuable as a seasoning. Salt is valuable as a preservative. Salt is valuable uh, as a, a means of creating thirst. I remember years and years and years ago when I first pastored in an agricultural community that I went to a livestock auction and they brought in a, a, a large, overly plump uh, uh, cow and, uh, and the bidding started and nobody bid and the price went down and down and down and nobody bid and nobody down. And finally, I elbowed the farmer that I was with and I said, what in the world is going on? That cow looks big. He looks fat. Uh, why wouldn't anybody buy him? And they said, well, apparently the farmer wanted to get a good amount of money for that cow when he brought him to auction. And so he put him to the salt block all day and he drank 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 and he drank. And as a result, of that, he's all puffed out. And he looks like he's huge, but the truth of the matter is he's probably scrawny and sickly and nobody's going to buy that thing. What good is salt if it isn't salty? All of those natural qualities have parallel points of application for the followers of Christ and are frequently developed devotionally. And there's nothing wrong with that to develop the elements of salt devotionally for for devotional challenge, but that's not the point of the text. The Lord himself, after stating the similitude, verse 13, immediately spoke about the uselessness of salt that loses its savor or its saltiness. Now, in the natural world of God's creation, salt is a stable compound that does not lose its saltiness apart from contamination. And I've read that during the period of the first century that the salt that was greatly craved and desired in the Middle East was often compromised by gypsum. Contaminated salt is useless for seasoning. Contaminated salt is useless for preserving. Contaminated salt is useless for thirst production. You can just pinch, pitch it out, but you better make sure that you get it on the walkway or the driveway. Uh, you wouldn't want to get it in your garden. 
Uh, it's just to be more dirt underfoot, as the scripture says it. Uh, you won't want it in your garden because it will corrupt your soil. Salt is the only rock we regularly eat. A lot of things about salt to be considered. The followers of Christ, like salt, are valuable. And if they have diminished their own value by low living and lacking trust and obey, well then, they become pretty useless. Christians are pretty useless when in fact they don't reflect the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. The followers of Christ, like Saul, are valuable for their subtle influences upon sinful men in this decaying world. The sinful world has lost its savor and desperately needs the Savior. By God's design, the followers of Christ are salt-like. They are to be used of God for kingdom purpose. When a believer is walking with the Lord in the light of his word, and he's evidencing that aspect of influence in the sense of his saltiness, it will be for some seasoning. It will be for others preserving. It will be for uh, still others uh, that which creates a sense of thirst and longing and desire uh, in them for the things of God. Similitude number two, of course, is the metaphor or the similitude of light, and it is employed in similar fashion. The followers of Christ are the representative or reflective lights of the Son of Righteousness. I guess you could say that the followers of Christ are a bunch of moonies. No, we don't want to say that. We don't want to say that. We don't want to say that. That would be misunderstood if we called you a bunch of moonies. Uh, but the term uh, fits in the sense that clearly uh, Christ is the light of the world in which, in a way which no other man can be the light of the world. And yet Christ, who is the light of the world, said we are the light of the world who follow him. It is illogical. The text goes on to argue to light a lamp and then hide it away so as to not dispel the pervasive problem, which is, of course, the darkness. And all you have to do to get rid of the darkness is turn on the light. And so the idea here is that there is a hidden element of influence and impact that runs in a believer's life because of their value before God. And there is a, a very bright and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and commodity of light associated with the, with the believer's life, uh, which cannot be uh, ignored in the aspect of darkness. Again, the nature of the problem is darkness and decay. What has caused the problem in all the earth? Well, mankind's sin and death. Who is God's solution for sin and death? Christ, who is the light of the world. And the Lord Jesus does not tell his followers that they should be salt and they should be light. But rather he tells them that they are. They are salt. And they are light. 
The follower of Christ is made valuable intentionally by God for kingdom and saving purpose. And the child of God is made to be visible for kingdom and saving purpose. Now think about those two words. By God's design and calling, you as a follower of Christ, are valuable. As an individual following the Lord, by God's design and calling, you are visible in regards to God's saving purpose and kingdom life. And so it's not surprising then that you have in verse 16 uh, the imperative, the aorist imperative, let your light so shine before men. God's program is not dependent upon television. God's program is dependent upon people vision. God has designed that something of his saving purpose and something of his kingdom would be able to be seen on the screen of the lives of those that follow Christ. They do not uh, aspire to be salt and light. By God's own creation, they are salt and light. God did not call a committee together and said, I'm thinking about saying, let there be light. Uh, uh, what would that mean, and how would that work, and how would we get it done? No, God just simply said, let there be light, and there was light. And we gladly bow before the throne of God the Creator. And God, who made up his mind about my salvation and yours, has said, let there be light. And there should be light right here. Right now, for God's glory, for saving purpose, for kingdom reflection. Well, the third thing, the disciples imperative to shine. What is shown, the light of the Son of Righteousness, is to be seen in the life of the Lord's followers. If we use that messianic prophecy, we can characterize it in very interesting terms. The sun did rise, and we call it incarnation, or recently, Christmas. We could also say the sun did rise from the darkness of the tomb, and we call that resurrection. That sun of incarnation, that sun of resurrection is now shining out of heaven on the reflective moons providing light to this dark and sinful world. But as we said, the sun shining out of heaven shall soon come 
as appointed in the glorious morning of our righteous expectation. In the meantime, the times are mean, and the Lord commands his followers to let their light shine. Let your light as a disciple of Christ so shine. And the little word, the tiny word, so, in verse 16, defies and describes, defines and describes that shining. This shining is an arid, aorist, active imperative, meaning it is let and it's continued to be let, uh, give off light. Uh, uh, the intention of God was to set the city on a hill so that it could be seen. The intention of God was to light the candle or to light the lamp. And if you've been lit, you're not to hide it in the closet. You are to let it shine. I cannot at this point help but point to the contrast of the good works of the disciple that are called for in verse 16 and the good-for-nothing status of the one who has lost savor. Good works are not just good things. A junkard dog, an unsafe person, can do many, 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 many good things. They cannot do one good work. Good works are things that place before the eyes of men the light of Christ. Good works are things that place before the eyes of men the light of Christ. When people see the rays of him reflected off you, the Bible says God is glorified. Our dear friend Worsby observes that salt is a hidden thing working secretly and slowly, and light is a seen thing working openly and quickly. There is such a blessed balance in the design of God for our discipleship. You and I have been made to be seen and made to be felt among men. Now, lest we leave off in this hour and miss the bigger, broader development of truth as it stands in the New Testament scripture, let's turn in conclusion to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and appropriate what we've heard of our Lord in Matthew 5 with the instruction of the Lord's apostle, Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, I'll be reading 5 to 7. Paul's expression of the gospel truth preached further informs our understanding of ourselves as the light of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we, Paul, his team of missionary church planners, preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, 
for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, let there be light, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face or the presence of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God called light out of darkness when creating this world and God has called spiritual light out of darkness when saving the trusting soul. The light of Christ is not just shining on the believer that he might, like the moon, reflect the rays of the sun. No, not just reflecting on But indeed, God has put the light of Christ, the rays of Christ, the truth of Christ in the believer, in the knowledge of God's salvation as understood in Christ. The treasure of light, verse 7, possessed in the believer's body is likened to a light in a jar of clay. And what's the point of Matthew 5? Don't keep your light all hidden in the jar of clay. Can't help but think about Old Testament Gideon and the story of conquest in which they lit torch, stuck them in a clay pot, and at the command of the Lord, cracked the pot and let the light shine through. Have you ever met a Christian that was a crackpot? I know many. It's okay. It's okay to be a Christian crackpot. You want to know why? Because the important thing is that the light of Christ shine through. That is why we are here. That's why we're here. And for no other good reason. So after careful consideration of the Lord's words and taking in the commentary a number of biblical scholars, it is actually difficult to improve upon the thought. You ready? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. May Christ be honored. May the gospel of salvation be told. May our God be glorified in us. Father, this morning,